This is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the Christian year for liturgical churches. In my sermon this morning, I'm going to say a little bit about, or make a commercial message for the liturgical year and my own personal gratitude for being in a church that has a liturgical year. Then I want to say a little something to you about Mark's gospel, and we begin reading uh, in this cycle of readings from the gospel according to St. Mark. So I want to say some general things, and then to say some things about this gospel in particular, which has a lot of apocalyptic imagery in it about what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes again, and how do we make sense of what that all means, but perhaps more to the point, how the people who heard those words spoken to them for the first time understood them. Because you need to know something about the historical context uh, when the Savior speaks, uh, and how he is uh, interpreting this himself, how Mark's community took that material and interpreted it, and how you and I use it uh, in 2011, if at all. And then finally, I'm going to say something about this season of Advent, but the season that attaches to it, Christmas, the preparation for all of the hoopla that we engage in in this culture about these things, and maybe give us uh, a method by which we can be faithful to uh, what Advent teaches us and gives to us uh, for the four weeks prior to Christmas and uh, how it might strengthen us spiritually, emotionally, and mentally moving forward. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, the uh, disciples and apostles did not immediately traipse down to St. Luke's Church downtown Jerusalem and begin services from the Book of Common Prayer. The liturgical year, as we have it now, went through a process of development. And so, just so you know this, the center post of the liturgical year for Christians is Easter. And that came first. The second post in the liturgical year is Christmas. And that came next. And then we had two seasons of preparation that developed over time, one to prepare for Easter that we now call Lent, which was originally Holy Week, but then became a six-week-long observance, and a preparatory season for Christmas called Advent, and that uh, came in a, by, let's say, the 8th or the 12th, 11th century, we pretty much have Advent uh, the way we know it now. Advent uh, was firmly in the liturgical texts by the 8th century, but its length of observance and emphasis differed in various parts of the Western Christian world. So uh, here's how it worked in the 8th century. In Northern Europe, where our tradition comes from originally, Northern Europe, Northern France, what we call Holland, Belgium, uh, Germany, uh, and so on, England, uh, Lent, or rather Advent, was six weeks long, like Lent. In fact, it was called St. Martin's Lent because it began on November the 14th, which is the feast of St. Martin of Tours, and then went to Christmas. The emphasis of that preparatory season in Northern Europe was heavily penitential. 
it was like another Lent. And so the emphasis was on penitence and so forth. In the Mediterranean countries, as you might imagine, and in warmer southern climes, Advent was a four-week celebration, and it was tinctured with a little bit more joyful expectancy than what we had in northern Europe. So what happens is by the 11th century, the thousands AD, these two traditions come together, and we have a synthesis which shortens the celebration from six to four weeks throughout Western Christianity, but retains a penitential tincture and not quite the emphasis on joyful expectancy that now is a feature of the Advent observance and has been for a long time. So this season is very important, and there are many themes that we'll talk about for the next four weeks. There's God's judgment, there's the second coming, there's hope, there's repentance, there's understanding how all these things play as we await the coming of the Savior. And in Advent, uh, we think about that kind of expectation and what the second coming might mean. I should mention to you that in uh, the tradition at St. Luke's that we uh, practice, the color for Advent is blue. This is the ancient color for Advent in England, prior to the Reformation, and in Northern Europe, Northern France, and in uh, what the countries that I described at the beginning of the sermon. In other parts of the Christian world, uh, and some, in some Episcopal churches, they use violet for the um, Advent observance. So either is okay, but we uh, use the English use. Some referred to it when it got started again as British Museum religion, but don't you believe that for a moment. <laughs> what is the second coming? It sounds pretty Star Trekky in the gospel today, doesn't it? Like there's going to be some cataclysmic occurrence and Jesus is going to come again. I think the church in its liturgical celebrations and why the liturgy is so important. Remember, Episcopalians have a maxim that they use about the liturgy. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. What we pray, we believe. And so the benefit of being in a liturgical church is that the liturgy carries us. So in any particular time, if we feel distracted or disinterested, but we're here, the liturgy itself will, will carry us. When I became an Episcopalian in my late teens, that idea had an enormous impress on me. I came from a virtually a-liturgical church. So to be here was a great privilege and an honor, and I was grateful for that. And I soon, without sounding too cynical, began to realize that the liturgy uh, gives you kind of a twofer, which is if the sermon is bad, the liturgy will still carry you, right? You receive Holy Communion, right? So you don't have to rely, like on a lot of Protestant churches, the sermon being the absolute, oh, make or break deal. And so that's somehow uh, a bit of a relief as important and central as preaching is to our tradition, uh, I felt that was the case because, you know, there are times when you hear a sermon and it's a dud. So what can you do, you know? It's not as easy as you... I used to think that this would get easier over the years to do. Don't you believe that for a minute, I'll tell you right now. 
the second coming. We read today from Mark's gospel, his version of the apocalypse. Mark is the gospel we read in year B. And so let me say some general things about it. It is the uh, earliest of the gospels in the view of most New Testament scholars. And what does that mean? It means it was written between 70 and 75 AD. It's the shortest of the Gospels. It has a very apocalyptic character. And in all probability, this Gospel, as it was developed, started out uh, as a passion narrative that was in written form. And Mark, or the author of Mark's Gospel, took this passion narrative and added material both from the oral and written tradition that he received over time to produce his gospel. And so by the time we get to 70 or 75, we have a gospel that is heavily emphasizing the urgency of Jesus's message and that somehow in the world things are about to break. What did break? In 70 AD, the Roman imperial government came and burned down Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And the people who knew about this in Mark's community knew that that seemed to be the end of the world. It was like the second coming in some ways. Most of the Jews in Jerusalem fled the city and the community that Mark was part of fled the city too. Most biblical scholars believe that this gospel was written in Syria. So it was not in Jerusalem proper. And yet they all knew about this cataclysmic event. So when they speak of the apocalypse and to get ready, they're not speaking for, of some kind of otherworldly occurrence where we have all this happen. They have experienced this in their own lives. By extension, when we think about this in personal terms, which is what most people do these days when they think about their religious commitments or the historic tradition about what Christianity says, the grand narrative of Christianity, they would say to themselves, you know, I've experienced apocalyptic events in my own life. I know what it's like to have my world turned upside down. So what do we do to appropriate the idea of the second coming of Christ? That Jesus comes to us more than once. That this is the season where we pray to once again touch that presence, if we believe it, to be very far away from us. And it provides us occasions through our prayer, through our thinking, through our relational life, through the, the, what I'm going to speak to you about at the end, the ways and the means that we can now touch that presence and feel the Savior come again into our hearts. That this happens more than once. It happens over and over again. And I believe that that is what the Savior meant when he spoke about this in very dramatic and hyperbolic terms. It certainly is what Mark's community meant and the other gospel writers uh, in the New Testament so when we think about this apocalyptic imagery, think about it in terms of here, not somewhere else. And we're going to have this repeated as time goes on. Things are going to happen. Events become interpreted in this way. Second coming in Jesus' day 
and in Mark's day was not a Christian or Jewish term. It was a Roman term. It had to do with the coming of Caesar again. And what might occur when that happens? You know, by now, by the time of Paul, the earliest writing in the New Testament in the 50s A.D., we're beginning to see a lot of Roman generals who were part of all these wars that the Roman uh, Empire got into to solidify their power and their possessions now needed a place to live. They had too much stuff, too much power to go back to Rome. The emperor wanted them out of there living in some other city. And so the idea of Caesar coming again into some of these cities was not a happy thought. And they put two and two together when they were thinking about the second coming. Ooh, what does this mean for us? Now, when we say, what could we do during this season of Advent? You know, it's been fashionable for decades for preachers to speak to you about keeping the Mass in Christmas, keep Christ in Christmas, don't get all caught up in all of this, you know, the, the festive vortex. I actually think that preaching has had some effect. Because anecdotally, I talk to people who actually have been simplifying over time and have begun to see that uh, there was a period there where we're so frantic about all this gift-giving, about all this stuff that we need to sort of you know, turn this baby down. And so it, it doesn't seem useful to just beat that drum continuously. It's important that we learn how to simplify. And this is the time of year when we do that. Somehow, you know, we need to learn that this uh, culture is really hooked or addicted to velocity. And we need to do something about the velocity of life in some ways. You know, I'm old enough now to be a little bit appalled still to see kids in, you know, sixth grade with a Blackberry scheduling. You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, now? Or a smartphone, you know, an iPhone or something like that, scheduling stuff, because they're all booked up. They are all booked up. So... I don't know, that may be part of the whole deal. Remember that article, I still commend it, in the Atlantic Monthly about three months ago. How to send your kid to therapy. And read about some of the things that they talk about in there. And this velocity of life is part of that. Well, what could we do to keep somehow the spirit of the season, the spirit of Christmas... I'm looking at this now from Thanksgiving onward and to the rescue this week when I was preparing my sermon, I found an article that had been written in the New York Times and I think I have something that I need to commend to you. It's called A Serving of Gratitude May Save the Day. Bear with me. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude has been linked to better health, sounder sleep, less anxiety and depression, higher long-term satisfaction with life, and kinder behavior toward others, including romantic partners, 
A new study shows that feeling grateful makes people less likely to turn aggressive when provoked, which helps explain why so many brothers-in-law survive Thanksgiving without serious injury. <laughs> so here's the suggestion that John Tierney, the, who wrote the article, uh, some suggestions. Start with gratitude light. He suggests, for example, when you fall asleep at night, don't count sheep if you're having trouble. Count the things you're grateful for. So you don't need to go through a big nip-up or extravaganza about this. Maybe you can even write down on a piece of paper five things in one sentence in terms of where your gratitude is and what it is that you're grateful for. Further benefits were observed in a study of polio survivors and other people with neuromuscular problems. The ones who kept a gratitude journal reported feeling happier and more optimistic than those in a control group, and these reports were corroborated by observations from their spouses. These grateful people also fell asleep more quickly at night, slept longer, and woke up feeling more feeling good. Here's the next suggestion. Uh, contemplate a higher power. Religious individuals don't necessarily act with more gratitude in a specific situation, but thinking about religion can cause people to feel and act more gratefully as demonstrated in experiments at Baylor University. Other research shows that praying can increase gratitude. Go deep for gratitude. As a culture, we have lost a deep sense of gratefulness about the freedoms we enjoy, a lack of gratitude toward those who lost their lives in the fight for freedom, a lack of gratitude for all the material advantages we have. The focus of thanksgiving should be a reflection of how our lives have been made so much more comfortable by the sacrifices of those who have come before us. You know, there's a bad situation abroad in this country uh, because of the economic difficulties we've had for the last three or four years. And there is an internal sense of entitlement about the successes that people have enjoyed that have now become not just merely arrogant but um, destructive. When I came to the Silicon Valley in 1993, it occurred to me immediately that we, it was in the middle of the we're flying high in April here in the big boom. It seemed to be the center of the universe for entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship was elevated to a height where uh, the degree of moral righteousness that accrued to an entrepreneur was enormous. But what I have never heard much about is that many of us became successful here as the result of serendipity. I'm not taking anything away from your talents and abilities and your go-getterness, go any of those other things, achieving what the main spring of human progress has said we must all do. But nobody said, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. One of my senior wardens at Christ Church Sausalito moved to the Hawaiian Islands in 1953 and went to work. He was already worked for the Prudential Insurance Company. He was from New Jersey.
He moved to the Hawaiian Islands and was there for six years, longer than that, but for the first six years, selling insurance. And in 1959, Hawaii became a state. And Sten Johnson sold the state of Hawaii their insurance. You know. And he said to me, of course, as was typical of the Prudential Insurance Company, or maybe the other ones, was, what are you going to do next year? <laughs> what, what do we get now? How, what is it you're going to do now? You know. And he said, I was enormously successful there, but the fact, working for the Pru, he called it, he said, but you know what? I had to own up to the fact that I was the right guy at the right place at the right time. So part of the reflection during Advent is thinking about those things. It isn't the sense of entitlement. It's that sometimes you just are in the right position. It takes nothing away from your talents and abilities, but it's not just the only thing. So when they say about deep gratitude, I think that's very important. And there is the final one. Hey, it could be worse. When your relatives force you to look at photos on their phones, be thankful they no longer have access to a slide projector. <laughs> Again, I'm old enough to remember as a kid going over to my grandparents and my mother's friend's house and being subjected to a slideshow about our trip to Yellowstone. You know, holy cromoly. And then some guy would always fall asleep in the living room because it was dark and they were watching the slideshow and his wife would go, dearie, wake up, Shh, don't do that. You know, it was something you didn't want to have all the time. Instead, when your aunt expounds on politics, rejoice inwardly that she does not hold elective office. <laughs> Instead of focusing on the dry, tasteless turkey on your plate, be grateful the six-hour roasting process killed any toxic bacteria. <laughs> Is that too much of a stretch? When all else fails, remember the Monty Parthen mantra of the Black Plague victim, I am not dead. So, as you move through the Advent season, think about the things you're grateful for. Uh, pray to have Christ come into your heart again. And understand that that coming is the, the acknowledgement that you know that God loves you, <coughs> forgives you unconditionally. And that that's the starting place for all that we believe and all that we do. Amen. <laughs>